Welcome to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. The puzzle really is how do you fit those two things together? How can time both be, well, as McTaggart would put it, an A series and a B series? One where it's just events arranged earlier and later, and that seems objective. But then the other sense where, look, I'm in time in the present, and it keeps moving, and it moves ineluctably. I can't opt out, and I can't affect even how it seems to me. Sometimes it seems like it's going quickly. Other times it seems to pass very slowly, and I'm not really in control of that. So I'm more or less along for the ride. Good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening. No, I'm not crazy. And I'm not referring to the fact that I have no idea what is it that you'll listen to this episode. But once again, today, we will talk about time and in particular, whether it exists or not. So regardless of what time it is for you, welcome to another episode of What We Can't Not Talk About, the podcast of the Austin Institute for the Study of Feminine Culture. And welcome to our guest, Professor Daniel Bonavac. Morning, Daniel. Good morning. So first of all, thank you for accepting our invitation. I know you're very busy and you've already been with us, but since some of our listeners might be new listeners, would you say a couple of words to introduce yourself to our audience? Yes, I'm a professor of philosophy at the University of Texas at Austin. I've been here for 41 years. And I teach all sorts of things. I'm one of the few generalists left in philosophy. So I teach courses on logic, on the history of philosophy, on ethics, on a variety of different topics, including the history of Christian philosophy. And you're a bass player. And yes, I'm a bass player and also a piano and harpsichord and organ player, though I haven't had much opportunity to do those things recently. As my mom says, smart people do well everything, which is probably true. So as said, Professor Bonavac was with us both on the podcast and for an in-person lecture on climate change. And I encourage you all to click on the link that's going to be with our podcast. And it's a video of that lecture, which already has hundreds and hundreds of views. And also, I think that that lecture and that podcast are very clear evidence that we do not disinvite anyone and we welcome all sorts of talks, including about climate change. And it sounds like this is not true everywhere recently, right? Oh, that's definitely true. There are all sorts of things you can't talk about, even at the university, though it's gotten much better recently. The situation for free speech on campus was far worse a couple of years ago. So... I feel very encouraged by more recent developments. I'm glad to hear. Yeah, and there's the Academic Freedom Alliance that has been established. So I'm glad that you feel the change. But back to the topic of today, you recently led a compact seminar for our students and for the local community. The name of that seminar was Time to Think and Thoughts About Time. And so the idea of this episode is to let our audience learn some of the things that you share with our attendees. And I'm not sure how long this will go, but... If it gets too long, we'll just make two episodes. How about that? Sounds good. Okay, great. So first of all, before we begin, I recall asking you whether you wanted to lead a seminar for us on time. And I knew this, I told you, this is my obsession. I don't really think it exists. I, I don't know what to do with it. And you agreed happily to lead a seminar for us. So the question is, when did you start to get interested in this topic? And how much are you interested in the concept of time? It's not something I've written about 
partly because I have no idea what ultimately to say about it. I'm intrigued by it. And really, I guess my interest in it stems from the first semester of my freshman year. I took a fantastic course called Religion in Modern Culture with a professor named Gerhard Spiegler. And he was wonderful, really the best teacher on our campus. And I remember there was a slogan he mentioned at a number of points in that seminar, time is the monkey on our backs. And it's a funny image for one thing, but also as a freshman, it's easy to take time for granted. You have lots of time, at least you think, that's left to you. And it suddenly made me think about time in a different way. You know, when you're younger, you want to be older. You think it'd be great to be a few years older until I think you're about in your mid-20s. And then you suddenly think, actually, I don't want to get any older. <laughs> your perception of time changes and also your sense that hmm, time is passing becomes more pressing. So it wasn't on my mind, particularly as a you know young freshman, but suddenly that thought that time is the thing that really structures our lives was impressed upon me. And we read a number of authors from Heidegger to Nietzsche to a variety of more religious thinkers like Paul Tillich that were all in various ways really concerned with the notion of time and how it shapes our lives. So it's been in the back of my mind, at least ever since then. I see. And what would be, in your opinion, the most significant authors that have written about time? Well, the people I included in this small seminar are the ones I think of as most central, at least that can be presented in one session. <laughs> Heidegger also strikes me as very important, but I'm not going to try to do Heidegger in one two-hour session, so yeah. uh, I did not include him. But Augustine really seems to me the first major author who talks about time, and still the best. If you want to really think seriously about the problem of time, just read chapter 11 of the Confessions. It's where he's reflecting on time and eternity and, to some extent, memory. And it really seems to me the deepest thinking that exists. Yes, and I want to absolutely get there and get a little deeper into what St. Augustine said. I'm very glad you said it because of all the things we read, St. Augustine remains the one that, I don't know, I just... Someone made that joke when I said with my broken English, you know, that St. Augustine agrees with me. <laughs> <laughs> so, right? Of course, it's the other way around. Absolutely. But I do see that what he thinks makes a lot of sense in the way he writes is also because it's so like a stream of consciousness. But before we get, so I would just mention that we talked about Boetius and Aristotle and Borges and Dan McTaggart. And I don't think I'm forgetting anyone right now. I think that a big absent was Seneca. Oh, uh. Yes. On, right, the, the shortness of life, more about how we invest our time rather than the essence of time. That's probably why it wasn't. But mm -hmm. so right. speaking of St. Augustine, you created a great outline for the students in describing what he describes in the confessions. But first of all, could you tell our audience why they do not remember reading Augustine on time? <laughs> <laughs> why they don't remember? Well, probably because they never have. I mean, philosophy courses typically jump from Aristotle all the way to Descartes and ignore everything in between, which is a terrible shame. They do it, I think, because there's a kind of hostility to religion that exists in the field. But to some extent, people think, look, it gets complicated and all these philosophical questions become entangled with religious questions and they don't want to really get involved in all of that. And so they 
leap over more than a thousand years of philosophy, even in literature or history classes where people do read the confessions, they often stop before they get to the philosophical stuff at the end. They act as if, oh, we're interested in the autobiography, but we don't really care about his reflections on memory, on time, eternity, the creation of the world, and so on. But there's a lot of really important philosophical material in those. So I think part of it is people just skip over this for one reason or another. And it's really a terrible shame, partly because what he's doing there, in a sense, does have this stream of consciousness feel. But it also is, once you reflect on it, highly structured. He has, and it's hard to say whether he thinks it out very clearly and then presents it in a sort of stream of consciousness style, or whether he's just that brilliant that his stream of consciousness is way better than most of our highly structured thinking. Absolutely. But when you reflect on what's happening there, you realize he's laying out a variety of puzzles. And those puzzles seem to me fundamental to the nature of time, whether you think of it in a religious context or a personal context about the way it shapes your life or about memory or anything else. It's really deep and about the nature of time itself. And I think it's also very interesting, as you mentioned, where you were presenting this to the students, that it makes a lot of sense to have a chapter on time at the end of an autobiography, right? Like, could you say more about that? Yeah, exactly. He is the kind of thinker that all throughout that story is describing not only what happened to him and the progress of his own character development, really, in his own relationship with God, but is also reflecting on the kinds of issues in general. I mean, he doesn't just talk about his own sins. He reflects on the nature of sin, or he will be thinking about whether certain things are objective or just a matter of his own feelings. But he he doesn't just sort of glance off of that. I think there are very deep criticisms, for example, of Plato's theory of forms and of Aristotle and of other things going on in the Confessions. So if you think about it as a recording of his life in time, he then realizes, well, wait, what enables me to even do this? Hence, I start reflecting on the nature of memory. And then I start thinking, but I'm remembering now things that happened earlier. But wait a minute, <laughs> that leads him to reflect on time. So all of this is something that is pretty natural if you're a reflective person. What are you doing when you're describing your own history, your own biography? You're really reflecting on the progress of yourself over time. And that makes him think a lot about who he is and what it is to exist in time and what time is itself. So it strikes me as kind of an ideal philosophical autobiography where he thinks about all the questions that arise from just doing the autobiography as well as the questions that arise in the context of his life. Yeah, and I really hope that our audience is grasping the depth of this thought of what am I looking at when I'm looking back, which I think makes a lot of sense if you combine that to the Christian concept of forgiveness, because there is something then that becomes immediately up if who you are is who you are now, then it makes a lot of sense to forgive you for what you did in the past if you now you're sorry for it. Right, right. That's a great point. One of the things that 
is involved in one of these paradoxes of time. One of the puzzles he lays out is By that- By the way, I just have a deja vu right now, which is hor- <laughs> a horrible feeling of feeling that this happened again, like it already happened. But yeah, yeah. Well, it's the sort of thing that when I reflect on myself, I think, yes, who I am is who I am now. In fact, everything is what it is now. The past, in some sense, feels like it's gone. But of course, if it's really gone- How can we remember it? How can we write a book about our own past? How can we even think about what somebody has done to us? It must in some sense be real. And so I think that's the kind of thing that makes him think, wait a minute, I don't really understand the nature of time. It feels as if the past no longer exists. The future doesn't yet exist. The present is all that exists. And yet so much of what I do is based on planning for the future or is shaped by the past that I've got to have those be real in some sense. And of course, he's thinking of this in a religious context too, where he's thinking of God as seeing past, present, and future all at once. Well, if God can see all of this, if it's present to God, it must in some sense exist, even though it's past. So, yeah, and, of, and speaking, oh, sorry, and speaking of God, he starts precisely from this, like the first question being, what did God do before creating the world? Correct. Right. Right. He reflects on that question: What was God doing before creating the world? And ends up concluding that the whole question, in a sense, makes no sense. Mm-hmm. God couldn't have been sitting around doing nothing because then God would have changed. And he's committed to the idea that God, being a perfect being, cannot change. So God would have gone from not creating the world to then later having created the world. That would be a change in God, which means for him that creation had to be the creation not only of the world from nothing, but also of time itself. Time and the universe were created together. I find it fascinating that now contemporary physics, thinking about the Big Bang, thinks of it in precisely those terms. If you say, what happened before the Big Bang? Look, that was the creation of space-time as well as of the universe. So, this is fascinating. So Thank yeah, you for, it's, uh, it's yeah. kind of a, it's not at all an old-fashioned or strange philosophical idea. It's now, I think, the commonly accepted view among most physicists. But that sort of thing he argues for on the basis of abstract theological principles. For us, of course, it's not like that. Lots of things existed before we came into existence, at least in bodily form in this world. But to get back to your question about forgiveness, there is a sense in which the past must exist. But on the other hand, from our perspective in time, it feels like it's gone. And so that does open up possibilities of forgiveness, thinking whatever happened in the past, it's not who I am now. It's not what you were then. It's it's a different situation now. And it lets us have a different perspective on the past. Not only I think about forgiveness, but about freedom. I don't have to be what my past has shaped me to become. And indeed, his own conversion is a good example of that, where he, in a sense, goes back to the past. His mother, Monica, had raised him to be a Christian, and then he had fallen away from it. So in some sense, he's going back. But in another sense, he's making a radical break with what he had been thinking before. And one thing you mentioned during the seminar, I remember this, that there was a heresy that he might have been answering to at some point of the presentism. Ah, well, presentism is how philosophers today describe this view that the only thing that's real is the present. 
And he ends up saying, look, from one point of view, that seems right. The past no longer exists. The future doesn't yet exist. Only the present really exists from our point of view. On the other hand, from God's point of view, it must all exist. God is looking at all of time at once. But it's not just that. He's describing his own past. If it doesn't exist, what is he describing? (laughs) So it must in some sense exist for him to be able to talk about it in the confessions. And it's that kind of paradox that makes him puzzled about the nature of time. So at one point he says, in fact, the drops of time are too precious for me. He realizes he's not going to come up with a conclusion in this chapter about what time is exactly. It's a question that's, in a sense, too deep. And so I think what he's doing is throwing out a series of puzzles. And the best he can do to deal with it is to say, maybe we need to think about time in just two completely different ways. There's a kind of objective sense of time, the sense in which it would be present to God, but also the sense in which science, let's say, could describe a world where there aren't even any sentient beings at all, Mm. such as after the creation of the universe, but before any actual life life appeared on it. That would be something where we can intelligibly talk about time. But on the other hand, to talk about time in the sense of what's the difference between the present and the past and the future, that's something that requires a perspective that's inside of time, a more subjective perspective. And so I think he concludes by saying, we actually need to take these two perspectives. There's this internal perspective with of a being within time, where there's a difference between past, present, and future, and it looks like only the present exists. On the other hand, we've also got to make sense of a more objective notion of time in order, for one thing, to just make sense of the idea that we could write an autobiography and talk about things in the past, but also because we need to think about what it would be like to have a a universe described where, let's say, there was no life, or at least not yet any life, what it would be like to describe time from a scientific point of view. Because he says, after all, look, there are times when we, in fact, we say, you know, wow, time flies when you're having fun or something like that. And other times when you're, let's say, studying for an exam or you're trying to fall asleep and you can't sleep, that it seems like time passes very, very slowly. And yet you look at the clock and it's telling you, oh, what? It's only been 45 minutes. I feel like I've been here for hours. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And uh, actually, I've been to philosophy lectures that have that sort of feeling to it. (laughs) What? It's only, you know, a half hour in? Oh, my gosh. And that sort of thing is part of our subjective conception of time. But there's also what the clock on the wall actually tells you, a more objective measure of time. And so, in some sense, I think what he's grappling with in this chapter is that divide. I have this subjective notion of time, and it locates me in time, as in the present. But we also have this more objective measure of time that seems independent of our own position in time. And they're both aspects of time. So I think he's trying to think, look, I've got these two points of view about time. I can't do without either one. And indeed, as you say, it would be something of a heresy or just a philosophical mistake to think only the present is real. That's the way it looks to us subjectively. And that's part of what it is to be in time. But there's also this more objective measure. And so he doesn't want to conclude, as McTaggart does, 
ah, time is just unreal. Mm-hmm. It's all a fiction somehow that yeah. we impose on the world. No, it isn't. There really is the clock on the wall. And when the physicist says the universe existed for billions of years before the appearance of life, that's not nonsense. We can make sense of that idea. And all that requires a more objective sense of time. And the puzzle really is how do you fit those two things together? How can time both be, well, as McTaggart would put it, an A series and a B series? One where it's just events arranged earlier and later, and that seems objective. But then the other sense where, look, I'm in time in the present, and it keeps moving, and it moves ineluctably. I can't opt out, and I can't affect even how it seems to me. Sometimes it seems like it's going quickly. Other times it seems to pass very slowly. And I'm not really in control of that. So I'm more or less along for the ride. And they're both crucial parts of time. And he says, you know, in a sense, the key philosophical puzzle is not which one is right. They're both essential to understanding time. Just how can they both be essential? (laughs) How do you fit them together? I want to go back to Mike Dagger and continue. The next one would be Boetius. But let's, for a minute... The fact that St. Augustine writes this autobiography and does this exercise of memory make me think of something that Matthew Crawford writes in his book, The Word Beyond Your Head, on attention. And in talking about attention and directing attention as the true exercise of freedom, opposing it to a, a wrong concept of autonomy, let's say, that makes us do whatever we want, whenever we want, it doesn't have a contact with reality. Some point talks about a memory, like the exercise of remembering. And that made me think of like how much in religious also scriptures is like, remember, like remember who you were, remember how you've been freed, remember, remember. But like remembering as an act, and I think it's also in psychology is very important as to give coherence to your existence. And I'm wondering if you notice, you're a teacher, you encounter a lot of students, but I'm thinking as we do here now at the Institute and They're so busy that I wonder, does our life give us the time to look back, to say, okay. And I know that, you know, some Christians have the habit to do the examination of conscience at the end of the day, which at least makes you do the memory of that single day. But do you have any thought about that? Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts about that. I think you're right that that act of remembering is crucial to our own sense of personal identity. Someone who simply lives in the moment, for whom the present really is all that's real and the past is just gone, it's hard to find coherence in their thoughts and their personalities and so on. And I think they find it hard. So it's crucial to think about those things, to have the opportunity to reflect and to think about the present in relation to the past. I think our culture in general, our pace of life, as you point out, but also our culture values innovation. It values the new. And it tends to downplay history and memory. And so that exhortation, remember, remember, I can't help but think of actually something I sang as a choir member a number of times, this piece by Purcell, if I'm remembering correctly. Remember, remember. And of course, then it says, oh Lord, not our offenses. Like, Mm -hmm. God, please forget about certain things. (laughs) But it's also a bit of an exhortation to us. And there's that great scene in The Lion King where Mustafa appears to Simba and says, remember, remember, Simba, who you are. (laughs) And I think- I forgot about that. Thank you. (laughs) 
I think all of that is crucial. And you're right, college students have so much to do. But it's not just them. So many people have their lives so full of stuff that they don't have an opportunity to reflect and remember. Now, the older I get, the more I see continuity in my life, the more I see things in myself that trace back a long way. So the more my own life feels coherent to me, more so than it did when I was younger, where I thought, oh gosh, I could go all sorts of directions and Mm -hmm. so on. It all feels like it converges more. I think a lot of people, especially in their late teens and throughout their 20s, don't have that sense. And maybe it's part of being that age. There's this open field of possibilities and you don't want to feel constrained by the past. You also aren't quite sure which of those pick up which themes from your own past. So it's hard to make those evaluations. But part of it is that their lives tend to be so busy with things and they're so bombarded with new ideas, with new cultural influences, new songs, new things to do and so on, that there's not much opportunity to reflect. One of the wonders of being a university professor is that it's not that you don't have much to do. You have a lot to do, but you're more in control of when you do it. You're more in control of your time. And there's more opportunity for doing that kind of reflection. Of course, being a philosopher, that's kind of our business. So I can say, hey, I'm doing my job when I'm doing that kind of reflection. Most people don't have that luxury. But I do see around me so many people who are driven almost to distraction by the tasks of the day, that they don't have an opportunity to think about the bigger picture and don't have a chance to remember the past. What is fun is that I'm thinking, we just had a, recently had a podcast on prison and prisoners, and I'm thinking that's, yeah, that's a condition where you have time to write your diary and your memories, right? If you're a criminal jailed, which actually then was fun, is a funny thought because that's exactly when Boetius, which is our <laughs> second author that we wanted to, is, as far as I know, Boetius writes two centuries after Augustine, more or less, and he writes his, the Constellation of Philosophy while he's in jail. Exactly right. Yeah. That is a time when, yeah, there's plenty of time to reflect. And if you're allowed the materials, plenty of time to write. So he engages in a lot of very deep reflections and I think frames certain problems that you could see traces of maybe in earlier authors, but he frames them in a really clear way. And I think you're right. It's partly because he has the time. He's sitting there in jail having the opportunity to really think these things through. It's something that so few people, especially in contemporary culture, I think do. When people were engaged more in agriculture, they Mm -hmm. had, in a sense, more opportunity. Not that there isn't a lot of very hard work in farming, but it's seasonal. And there are seasons of the year when there's not a lot you can do and you have that opportunity to reflect. Contemporary jobs, for the most part, aren't like that. They aren't really highly seasonal in that way. Teachers, at least, are supposed to have the summer to that reflection. But for most people, the only real chance you have to do this is either a vacation, and then so many people plan a busy vacation, there's no time to reflect, or it's on holidays like over Christmas, and then there's so much activity, there isn't time to reflect either. So it's a problem. So how is Boetius then different from Augustine, if we can, let's say, compare the two in the way they look at time? Yeah, his perspective on time is, in a sense, less subjective, less focused on his own life, and more focused on 
a more, you might say, a more global problem about time. He's thinking in part about God's foreknowledge of things. And so the puzzle is really God being omniscient would have to know what I'm going to do tomorrow, today, and would have known it really since the beginning of time. But if that's true, then isn't it already determined what I'm going to do tomorrow? After all, God knows it now, and God knew it from the beginning of time, so it must have been fixed what I'm about to do tomorrow from the beginning of time. But if that's true, how do I have any freedom? Surely I can't then change it and make God actually wrong about what was about to happen. God can't be wrong. And so he starts thinking, how can it be that I can be free and actually making choices and yet have an all-knowing God? So he puts it in a very specific religious context. But as I mentioned at the end of our little session on this, I think the problem is one that actually doesn't directly involve God at all, because it really has to do with truth in a sense. I mean, it was true yesterday that I was going to do whatever I'll do tomorrow. It was already true. If somebody had said yesterday, you will do this two days from now, and I do it, what they said was true. So it was true then, it looks like. But wait a minute. Then, if it was true then, how could there be any freedom for me to act now? So we really have a problem about not just specifically God's knowledge of the future, but you might say about knowledge of the future, period, and even about truth about the future. So I think all of those go together. And the puzzle here then is a somewhat different one about the nature of time. It doesn't really depend on, you might say, my specific perception of time as past, present, and future. It has to do with my ability to choose in time. So with free will. With free will, exactly. And that's Was something Boetius the that, first one to ask questions about free will or no? He wasn't the first person to raise the general question. The Stoics were very concerned with the question of free will. But I think he was the first one to see its link to the problem of time and recognize that, well, in a certain sense, I shouldn't say he's the first. Aristotle is mm, the first yeah, sure. because Aristotle yeah. realizes this puzzle about truth and says, so, okay, tomorrow either there will be a sea battle or there won't be. It must already be true today, right? Whichever it is, but we don't know. But if it's already true today, it looks like it would have to be already fixed. It would have to be faded in some way. And here he's not thinking so much about human choice. So he's not really putting yes. into the context of free will. But he's thinking, but wait, it seems indeterminate. I mean, it might go either way. And similarly, we could take human beings out of it altogether. Presumably, human beings would make a choice about being in a battle or not. But it could just be, it might rain tomorrow. It might not. And that doesn't depend on human choice. But if we think they're both real possibilities, and yet one weatherman, let's say, is predicting that it will, another that it won't, one is going to be right, one's going to be wrong, we'll say that was true or that was false. And so how can that be? And he ends up concluding that actually we can't say it's true or false. So to talk about what will happen in the future, you can't say, oh, I was right. It wasn't true what you said at the time. It can't be true or false if it's about the future, he thought. Now, Boethius doesn't think that makes any sense at all, partly because we do think not only that God knows things about the future, but that we do. So that's something that immediately makes him say, look, no, it's true now, <laughs> but that creates this puzzle. I don't know if this is a question that I already raised during the seminar session, which is very possible, but when you say foreknowledge, 
talking about foreknowledge already implies that it's a knowledge in time. Yes. Right? And instead, there could be this view from the outside. Like, if you are a being outside of time, you know things altogether, which doesn't mean you know them before or after. You just know as a zooming out, let's say. People cannot see me like the way I'm using my hand as every Italian does when speaking. But like, um, <laughs> right, you see the whole movement. But that doesn't mean it was before you did it. It's like contemporary to the whole. Is that where Boetius is going? Is that where he lands? Yes, yes. Because one of his solutions is actually to follow Augustine and say, God is outside of time. If you think of time as this roadway, and we're on the road, so we are thinking about choices we make along the road and which direction to go, which path to take. God is seeing the entire thing all at once. And so God not being in time, we can't really talk about God's knowledge as being in the past or the present or the future. God's knowledge is just from this atemporal perspective. So when I started by saying God knows today what I'll do tomorrow, Boethius would already say, no, wait, God's knowledge is not in time. God doesn't know things today or yesterday or at the beginning of the universe or something like that. Hmm. God's knowledge is just not temporal. So you're already making a kind of conceptual mistake when you do that. Because Yeah, because otherwise the idea of rewarding the good and punishing the bad would also make very little sense. That's right. And that's the other part of his answer. It's not simply that God's outside of time, but also that we do make real choices along the way. Because if we don't, and if our path is already faded, well, then you're right. What sense would it make to blame us for anything or for God to be pleased with anything we do? It's all fixed in advance. And so it wouldn't make any real sense for God to punish or for God to reward anyone. It wouldn't make sense from our point of view for us to pray or for us to really even worry about the future or anything of that sort because our destiny is our destiny. There's nothing we can do about it. And so what's going to happen is going to happen. Prayer can't really make any difference and so forth. And Boethius says all of this is terrible. It, it really destroys our own perspective on our own lives, not just on our relationship with God. But how do you think about your own life if you realize you're just fated to do something and you have no freedom? Your own choices can't make any difference. Yeah, you couldn't even make friends and say, oh, I'm so thankful because this person is so generous to me because, well, that's the way she's programmed to be. It would be just like acting in robotic environments where you don't need to be grateful, you need to be angry. And I think you're familiar with the fact that this has been a problem, a problem I mean, in criminal law with the most recent neuroscientists that were trying to deny the existence of free will. And then at that point you say, well, then why punishing the criminal? Like we get back to the determinism of like two centuries ago. But this is like, it sounds like it's a question that we keep. Human beings have a hard time accepting our own agency, right? That's probably what it is. Yeah, there is an element of that for sure. We would love to avoid responsibility. And you're right, it would have big implications for the criminal law. What sense would it make to send someone to jail for something they really couldn't have done otherwise about? What sense for that matter would it make for me to be grading students I mean, they had no choice but to put that. Of course, you might say, well, I have no choice about assigning <laughs> these grades either. But the whole exercise of trying to educate someone or train someone or influence someone, none of that would really make any sense. They're going to do what they're going to do. And, of course, your own 
educating them or training them or talking or whatever might play a causal role in that, but it all would appear to be fixed. It threatens to take us outside of time and outside of our own lives and just become spectators of things that are fated to happen anyway. And I think it's impossible, actually, to view your own life that way. Borges has a character who at some point describes himself as feeling like an abstract perceiver of the world. And it's vital to his psychological ability to do something terrible. But on the other hand, we couldn't view our whole lives, I think, as abstract perceivers of the world. What would it mean to view your entire life merely as a spectator rather than Mm. as an agent, as an actor, as somebody who's taking responsibility? There seems to be some of it, though, in the virtual reality that we live of projecting itself. I think that, and then is when the encounter with reality, which is also a theme that many thinkers that I like have talked about encountering reality and letting reality challenge you, especially when meeting another person, right? And feeling something for another, feeling friendship, but falling in love is another way, right? To accept that, no, there is such thing as my freedom and that person's freedom of meeting somewhere. But- right. You mentioned Borges, and he is my favorite. On the topic, I would say St. Augustine is the one that describes to me our puzzling with time in the best way. Borges is, I think, one of the best authors someone can read, and his short stories are phenomenal. Before we get into what Borges says about time, you mentioned how something I discovered in preparing for the seminar, that he was a friend here at UT. Yes, yes, he was here as a visitor quite frequently in the last few decades of his life. Once he <laughs> once he got into sufficient trouble in Argentina, he found it valuable to leave. He turned down the post of inspector of rabbits and chickens and decided instead to be a visiting professor here for half the year. And the other half, he tended to travel the world and give lectures. Just some a very brief more background on Borges and his time at the library. What was it? Yes, he spent much of his life working in the National Library in Argentina in a job that he could do easily. It was far beneath him, but it did give him a tremendous amount of time in the National Library to simply read, to write. His writings are filled with references to obscure volumes. Some of them he makes up, but some of them are really existing volumes. And he was astoundingly well-read. His parents wanted him to be fluent in a variety of languages. So they raised him to be bilingual in Spanish and English, and also began teaching him German from a very young age. So Spanish, of course, was his, in some sense, native language, But since he grew up speaking English with his parents as well, even though it wasn't their native language, he really was very fluent in English, had an excellent command of German and a variety of other languages. You mentioned that he mentions the, he he has a lot of quotes to the things he read while he was at the library. So I think that we could start precisely from there because the two excerpts that you had the students read to prepare for the seminar, whereas one was the New Repetition of Time, but the other one was the story, the, the Garden of the Forking Paths, which starts, and I discovered it from you, with a wrong quote. Right, right. Yeah. And intriguingly, given reflections on the nature of time, it's something about the past and about a development that it insists made no difference to the outcome. In fact, the real quotation says it made a huge difference to the outcome, these torrential rains that went on for day after day. 
And the outcome, by the way, was the Battle of the Somme, the bloodiest battle of World War I, in which 306,000 people died. So it's momentous that this week-long rain delayed the attack in a way that made it vastly less effective and got both armies bogged down. But when you reflect on the fact that it's a misquotation, I mean, I think in part that is meant to make you focus on this question of when things we do make a difference and when they don't. I see Borges in this story as making two really interesting contributions. One is, if God is looking down on time as something like a road, it's not just a road with no exits. Mm. (laughs) It's a series of forking paths where people really do have choices. And you can think of yourself as an abstract perceiver being carried along and not having any freedom. But in fact, you do. There are all sorts of forks in that road where you can go to the left or go to the right. You can take the exit or stay on the road. And that's something that is the first crucial contribution. It branches, and that's where human freedom comes in. But also, some of the branches lead back. Think about paths through a wood, or for that matter, roadways. Often they separate, but then they come back to the same point. And so Borges says it doesn't just fork in the sense of a tree-like structure. Some of these things come back together. And we don't know, in many cases, which of our actions make a difference and which don't. Some really do, and some events really make a difference, like this rainstorm. It's interesting that example at the beginning is not a human action. It's just day after day of rain. But some of those things make a big difference and some don't. And we don't always know, in a sense, from the inside, which are making a difference. The protagonist of that story ends up killing an innocent person. In fact, the only person in the world who really understands his own ancestors' work. And... So he commits a terrible action. Does it make a difference? Well, at the end, he feels immensely guilty over it, but also feels as if at least it did make a big difference. However, when you reflect on the fact that he's reading about the murder in the same newspapers that report the bombing that supposedly was the result of his getting this murder published and then getting the word back to Germany to bomb Mm -hmm. the city in that way— You realize, wait, do you mean the same papers on the same day? If so, then what you did made no difference at all. Now, if it just means the same papers, but on different days, maybe you did. Maybe. So the yeah, reader's and, and left for with people, that question. Because the audience probably hasn't read the story of the Forking Path, so they should probably could link to it too and have them read it and then try to figure out what we're trying to say here. But the summary being, yes, that this protagonist is thinking to do at least this great deed that will make a difference, but ultimately it does not. What you said also with the idea that there are some paths and then get together, I think it makes me think of another author, um, South American, Paulo Coelho, that way more recently wrote The Alchemist. That was like this super where, you know, you go back where you had to go. And I don't know, I feel like because we're talking to a lot of young people and with this podcast, that there is something that it's true. We don't know where our life will be, but what we do know is what we can do today. Like there is a sense in which... Even this lack of knowledge that we have where, you know, things will go down the road, but we are very much in control about what we can do today and tomorrow, right? The next step. Because it it could cause otherwise a sense of like 
despair and absolutely lack of control on things. And I don't think that that's even where Borges wants to go. No, absolutely. I think he wants to say, look, there are real choices. There is huge responsibility, actually, for making critical choices. But I think he also wants to say that the existentialists, people like Camus or Sartre or Heidegger, who stress a kind of absolute freedom, that's not quite right either. Because some things, not only is it true that our past and our situation constrain us, they would all admit that, but there is an ability we have to make real choices that make a difference. But some of our choices actually don't. (laughs) And so we end up in the same place no matter which path we take. And I think he's in part saying, look, yes, we have freedom and therefore we do have responsibility. It is the garden of the forking paths, and we have choices to make. And sometimes they lead us to very different places. Sometimes, however, it turns out those choices that we end up obsessing about are rather inconsequential. One that my students often relate to, and that I relate to personally, is you apply to various colleges. Let's say you get into more than one of them. Which one do you choose? People can obsess over that and think it's going to make a huge difference to their lives. Well, sometimes it does, but often it doesn't. They end up in the same place anyway. I worried about that. In fact, I chose a college that basically my choice was one that a lot of people would say, why on earth did you choose that? That seems like a counterintuitive choice. And I've sometimes thought maybe I should have made the other choice. But it turned out my best friend when I got to UT was somebody who had made the other choice in the same year, in fact. And we ended up exactly the same place, a good instance of that. So I actually find that sort of thing not frustrating, but in a way reassuring. And fascinating. And fascinating. So I, I do believe, like you, that there are things that have to happen in your life. And regardless of what you will do, why you're going to start, like people you will meet inevitably. Right, right. And it also suggests sometimes we worry about things that in the end, aren't going to make a difference. We obsess about whether to live in this city or that city, whether to go to this college or that college, accept that job or this job, and so on. And sometimes it matters a lot. You know, Robert Frost says, you know, two paths diverged in a yellow wood, and that's made all the difference. But sometimes it doesn't make a difference. And we spend hours, weeks, months worrying about something that in the end is just inconsequential. Now, Borges is partly concerned to say, and sometimes people do terrible, terrible things. And it turns out it was completely pointless. It was inconsequential. And they did it for no reason at all. And it's not that it didn't make a difference. Somebody died as a result. But in terms of what that person was trying to accomplish, it was a complete failure. So I think in part, it's a reassurance. Not everything is going to be a life or death scenario, but some things are. And you better be sure that what you're doing justifies that. So I see it as something like a big red flag to say the responsibility really is You're a moral agent. You're a moral agent, but don't think you can predict the future and justify terrible things. So in part, it's trying to say the end justifies the means. Well, maybe sometimes, but you don't really know what the end is going to be. So be very cautious about that. He also writes, another thing that you gave us to read was the new refutation of time and basically a rejection of idealism, if that's how we can phrase it. That's right. That's right. He wants to say there, I think, that we shouldn't get so wrapped up in this subjective notion of time that we forget that the world is real and the time is real. So who was the answer? Like, 
was that a claim that was being made that he's answering to? I felt sad that I didn't also ask people to read his story, Tlon, Ukbar, Orbis Tertius, which is a pretty bizarre story about a thoroughly idealist planet. And he sees this idealism of this planet that's completely imaginary starting to take over the world. At the end, he says, look, all of a sudden our schools are starting to teach the history of this imaginary idealist planet. And it's reshaping all sorts of disciplines of ours. It's like we're substituting this fictional past for our real past. He says, you know, 10 years ago, it required a comprehensive theory like Marxism or Nazism or Freud or something like that to reshape people's lives. Now it's this other completely imaginary world that's just taking over our world. And he's right. I'm not going to say what I think. He's writing this in 1940. And so I think he looks at various totalitarian movements of the 20th century, but also various other intellectual movements as engaged in doing this, as giving you this comprehensive theory of the world that is not adequate to reality. But people fall in love with a theory. And why? He says, because it's a labyrinth, but a labyrinth created by men. It's something we can decipher. It gives you this key to understanding the world. So you start studying Marxism, let's say, and all of a sudden, oh, the whole history of the world is the history of class struggle. And I've got this master key that unlocks mm-hmm. every door now. Or it's Nazism, and and actually it's more recent Uh, versions that tell you, no, it's all a history of racial struggle. And if you understand racial struggle, you unlock all the doors. Or with Freud, it's the conflict between the id and the superego and blah, 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 blah. And it's a variety of these totalizing theories that reduce everything to a few dimensions we can unlock. So I think he's And Vargas sees, traces that as the origin of every kind of totalitarianism, right? Because I think right. he was an anti-communist, anti-Nazist, anti-like, he, he basically was against every sort of regime and lived through most of them. It was a Peronism, was it, that? Exactly. That's what got him into trouble in Argentina because okay. he, was, he was a political moderate, a centrist, and a pro-democracy activist at a time when that was a really unpopular thing to be. So- He sees idealism as lurking behind all of these things, even those movements like Marxism that profess to be materialistic. He says, look at the mechanisms. It's all about ideas. It's all about a theory that will explain things that are far more complicated maybe in reality than they actually are. What was surprising to me is that you were saying that nobody in philosophy is still an idealist on paper. But then we have a word where it sounds like idealism and the idea that SS per cheapy and like all that matters how I feel about things is still exactly the reality we live in. Yes, yes, I think so. In philosophy these days, idealism is a term that has become unpopular enough that people won't admit to it, but they call themselves anti-realists. And so hmm, like you might say, what's the difference between an anti-realist and an idealist? Well, the name. Uh, (laughs) It sort of becomes unpopular, so you call yourself something else. It's a minority position in philosophy even now. But on the other hand, it is the majority opinion in most other areas of the humanities. So in many of the social sciences, in English departments, in all the cultural studies departments, it seems to me the underlying view is thoroughly idealist. And that's part of what really grips our culture. 
people don't pay much attention and it doesn't shape our culture much what people in real philosophy departments think now. The culture is much more shaped by what people in English departments or history departments or the various studies departments think. They are the ones that seem to be having a big cultural impact and their view filtered through a kind of postmodern lens is really idealism. Yeah. So in part, Borges is protesting against that. And he's trying to show, I think, in a rather subtle way, that from that point of view, you can't even make sense of the notion of time. So if I can quote him at the end yes, of that, it's please. really beautiful. So after laying out all these arguments that time is unreal, given idealist premises, he says, and yet, and yet, time is the substance of which I'm made. Time is a river that sweeps me along but I am the river. It's a tiger that mangles me, but I am the tiger. It is a fire that consumes me, but I am the fire. The world, unfortunately, is real. I, unfortunately, am Borges. And so he's saying, look, uh, from an idealist point of view, you think you've got a key that unlocks everything. In fact, you can't explain your own identity. You can't explain time. You can't explain much of anything from those premises. And he concludes, but in the end, look, I am who I am. I am Borges. I do have an identity. And time is real. And the world is real. And there is this really concrete and resistant world out there that I can't shape with my own ideas. I am born along this river. In some sense, I am the river. But I am. I am a being that exists. And so I think it's his protest against all of those reductive ideologies. And I mean, the last author that we mentioned was McTaggart that it talked about the unreality of time. And I'll be sure to link to all the the things that are available online that our audience can read if they want to read more. And probably McTaggart is one that requires being read before one can discuss it properly. It's a little more complicated and the arguments, at least I found, need a little more time to be laid down. You mentioned him earlier about the series, the A series, the B series, the air a little later, present, past, and future. And I think there's probably too much to be presented right now. And maybe I'll, I will show how much Borges is my favorite. But <laughs> just because of what we said and what you just said, I unfortunately am Borges. Another short story that we didn't read is The Immortal by Borges. And in The Immortal, there is one of the, I don't want to ruin the story, but one of the things that appears there, there's this person that fell in a hole and is not even trying to get out of the hole. And there's no point in saving one's life and getting out of a hole and instead of remaining there in the dark without food, without drinks, because if you're immortal, if life is eternal, if there is no time, you know, if you will never die, then nothing makes sense. And so I wanted to conclude with some thoughts maybe about the relevance that time has, including because it's limited. Like it otherwise, as much as we can be sad, you know, because we get old and we're not, but there is something that is extremely important about the fact that it passes by that otherwise would, and comparing that maybe some thoughts on that and some thoughts on today's obsession with stopping time, right? And this desire to create human beings that will live forever. That's a great point. And it brings us nicely back to the point about time being a monkey on our backs. Our lives are really organized by our own mortality. 
And if you imagine for a moment what it would be like to be immortal, and I don't mean here in the religious sense that you might live an everlasting life in heaven, let's say. I mean in this world forever. All of a sudden, there'd be no particular reason to do something today instead of tomorrow. You have as long as you want. Procrastination wouldn't even be a concept, right? <laughs> it wouldn't be fun. And it wouldn't, yeah, exactly. I mean, it wouldn't make any sense. Oh, you've achieved this. Well, you know, yeah, maybe I'll do that someday. But it, all of a sudden, everything we do, the more you think about it, the more you start thinking time shapes our whole concept of everything really about our lives. And it would be hard to know how to think about life in that kind of context. Some people, in, especially in Silicon Valley, are very interested in this project of extending life. So they'll say, look, I, you know, can't maybe make us immortal, but if we could turn off aging or at least slow it down radically, maybe the average life expectancy wouldn't be 70 or 80. It would be 300, 400, 500 years. But stop for a moment and just think about that aspect. Think about Social Security. Well, yes, retire. Sorry, retirement age is now 450. <laughs> but all of a sudden you'd think, well, that means like Descartes could still be teaching philosophy. And, uh, Whoa, you know, um, never thought about that. <laughs> uh, it might be that physics departments are still, you know, controlled by the fact that Newton is around. And like, Wow. It suddenly makes you think about everything in the world differently. And so at first it's like, great, I would love to be able to live, you know, an active life, not like uh, mm -hmm. the Sybil who is shriveled and old forever, yeah. but actually extend my youth. And extend, but suddenly you start thinking, well, wait, if that's happening to everybody, I'm not complaining. If somebody wants to offer me such a pill, I'll happily take it. Okay. For our, but, those in our audience that know where that is, so <laughs> Professor Bonifat right. would get it. Okay. The Fountain of Youth, you know, if you've got some, I'll find my ah, way there. Other fascinating but, short stories about the Fountain of Youth. I can't remember who was the author. Yes, sorry. No, but right. The more you think about that, the more you think, wait, that really reshapes so many human institutions and the way we understand our own lives. And I think then immortality would be like that, but extended indefinitely. All of a sudden, you find yourself not knowing how to think about anything. And I think it not only changes your perception of your own life, your own choices, responsibility, and so on, but it also makes you think, I don't know, maybe some things become completely unimportant. You got all the time in the world. Other things might become even more important. If you kill someone, you're not just eliminating what would have been 10 or 20 years of their life. Life, you might be eliminating the next 400 years of their lives. And so, Maybe some things then would become even more critical. Yeah. You would have more to lose by dying young and so on. You made me think of, I don't know if you listened to a past episode that we had with Dr. Alexander that presented a, something she wrote on immortality and memory in Homer. And it was a very fascinating conversation where apparently to be mortal, you have to give up memory. Memory is what makes you mortal or is a characteristic of mortals. And it was really a fascinating analysis of how Omar presents this in the Odyssey. Maybe a concluding thought for once. We always talk to our students, listeners. This was a refreshing reflection, this final one for the ones in our audience that are a little older and might want to stop time. Maybe they're making this saying, ah, it's, worth, it's good the way it is. It makes sense to age. It makes sense that time is limited and then we'll figure it out. 
Professor Bonavac, I want to thank you immensely for what you did again for our students, for the seminars, for the people that donate to the Austin Institute. They need to know that they donate to activities like the one you did for our students. It was four sessions and students were very happy with what you taught them. So thank you for that. And thank you also for being willing to participate in this podcast with me. And I hope to have you as a guest again. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you. Thank you all for listening to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. Please share it with your friends. Please give us a five-star rating and please donate so we can do even more.